Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. From the recent Reformation Boise Conference, Anthony Savaggio. With that in mind, let's turn our attention to God's holy word, Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And then here is our focus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works." Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. November 10th, 1986, 36, sorry, 32 years ago today, was a very formative day in my life. I couldn't believe this conference lined up with this day, but on that day, November 10th, 1986, I was a junior in high school, so now you can figure out how old I am. Uh, But that was the date upon which uh, Bruce Springsteen's highly anticipated five-album set came out. This was a big deal in high school for me, okay? I was a big Springsteen guy, and that was the day this was being released, and it was a major event. Springsteen was at the height of his popularity at that time, And people were lining up for the release of that album. And I wanted to be among those first in line. Now, I had, uh, you know, I I had one um, problem, though, and that was November 10th, 1986 was a school day. Yeah. And it was a 10 o'clock release that morning. Now, I knew I could get there physically because I had a car 
I had my favorite car I ever owned, my first pickup, my 19, uh, I had my, my, my F-150 pickup. I had a car, I drove to school, I could get there, but my problem was how to get out of school. And so I decided that would be a good day to have a dental appointment. Now, I wasn't a Christian in these days, so you had to give me some. I'm not proud of this, but I did do this. I wrote myself a note, and I signed my father's name to it, and I drove off to the record store, and I was first in line that morning. I was among the first in line. I was the first three people in line. Now, I made one slight miscalculation in my plan. I did not anticipate that the local media would be covering the event. (laughs) You can see where this is going, right? This is back in the days when you had like four channels, you know, and people watched the local news, and my dad watched the local news, and you know, and of course I'm a dumb, you know, like I can be on TV, this is great. So there I was getting interviewed, I was only happy, you know, to oblige, and there my dad saw it. Needless to say, I handed over the car keys uh, for a bit at that time. Now, what does that story have to do with chapter four of Calvin's little book on the Christian life? Well, both my story and ultimately I think what is at the heart of what Calvin is doing in chapter 4 is the topic of motivation. Of motivation. What will motivate us here in this life? Because we do what we're motivated to do. Dr. Murray brought this up last night in his presentation about the, the importance of motivation The dictionary defines motivation as an emotion, desire, physiological need, or similar impulse that acts as an incitement to action. Motivation leads to action. And we know this, right? If you're a parent, you understand the power of motivation because you want to motivate your kids to certain behavior, to certain ends. You try to incentivize them towards it. A tremendous amount of human effort is put forward in motivating people. Whether you work for a corporation, they want to motivate their workers to be more productive. If you're involved with sports, you are all about motivation. Or if you're in the military, uh, you're into motivation because people do what they are motivated to do. And I was motivated to get that Springsteen album and I found a way to do it. And the same thing applies to the Christian life. And this is what Calvin explores here in chapter 4. He explores what will motivate us to live for Christ in this age, in this present age, in the here and now. What is it that will motivate us? And so this morning I want you to see what it is that will motivate us according to Calvin and more importantly according to the scriptures. And I really have two major points and then I'll make several applications. Two major points. I want you to see this morning that motivations matter to God. God cares about motivation. And secondly, God motivates us with the prospect of the future life. That our motivation, our Christian motivation, is this contemplation, as Calvin says, of the future life. So motivations matter to God, and God motivates us with the prospect of the future life, that this is the heart of New Testament ethics. So let's explore those two things. First, let's look at the fact that motivations matter to God. And this is really an important thing. It's kind of a fascinating thing, because... Uh, I find it personally fascinating that God engages in motivation with us. 
lot of Christians believe, you know, well, I mean, we're supposed to. I mean, he's God is God, and so we have this blind obedience. We do what he says, right? We do what that hymn says, trust and obey. There's that bumper sticker, or you might have seen it. It says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. This is this kind of blind obedience. And certainly God could command that. He is the sovereign of the universe. He could simply say, do it, because I said so. But the fascinating thing to me is that God doesn't do that. He actually engages in in persuasion. And this is important because I think one of the things that cripples us in the Christian life is when we take God as some taskmaster who simply says, obey without any motivation or without any reason. It actually is counterproductive to believe that. It ends up in a sort of legalism. Kevin DeYoung in Uh, His book, There's a Hole in Your Holiness, which is out on the table there, wrote this, one of the reasons why I think Christians get tired of hearing about the law is because they never hear why they should obey the law. The imperatives hit us like a ton of study Bibles because we aren't given any motivation for keeping God's commands. Everything boils down to God said it, so do it. But that's not how God treats his people. He treats us much like children, as we do our own children. He tries to motivate us and persuade us. And Dr. Murray talked about this a little bit, and uh, you see this play out in Scripture. You see it in the Ten Commandments. Even in the Ten Commandments, most scholars have recognized, and you can tell, you don't have to be a scholar to recognize this, that God provides incentives in several of the commandments, so-called motivational clauses. Here is God, right, speaking in the most authoritative way, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, but he doesn't just say, I said it, so do it. He gives motivations. Think of the preamble to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a house of slavery. That itself is a motivation of gratitude. Do this because I have delivered you. This is the heart of Reformed theology when we use that paradigm of guilt and grace and gratitude, right? Live for me out of gratitude for what I have done. It's a motivation. Think about the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's a motivation. It's a negative motivation, right? It's punitive, but it's a motivation. Don't do this. Here's why you shouldn't do this. The third commandment is a similar thing. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. There are consequences. And of course, the fifth commandment, uh, as Dr. Murray mentioned last night, honor your father and mother, why? That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There is this motivation to it. Do this because you will live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. 
The Old Testament uh, scholar Patrick Miller wrote about these motivational clauses and he, he, he had this reflection upon them. He says this, he says, quote, the presence of divine persuasion indicates that the commandments cannot be reduced to blind obedience. They are not arbitrary and capricious, nor does God simply set them out to be obeyed. The one who commands also encourages obedience and seeks to draw forth a positive response from those before whom the commands are set. The deity who commands seeks to lure the people to a way of living that is appealing. God tries to draw us towards this obedience in an appealing way. He tries to motivate us. And as Dr. Murray mentioned last night, that is at a time when Israel was immature, so to speak, and, and the motivations are, are simplistic in a sense, and it evolves as Scripture unfolds in redemptive history, and these motivations mature along with the people of God and with the fullness of the unfolding of God's covenant plan in Jesus Christ. But when Jesus comes, He too offers us Motivations to believe, to live for Him. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6 of, the, of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus deals with the three pillars of Jewish uh, piety. He deals with almsgiving and prayer and fasting, and He shows how the motivations of people who are doing it in the wrong way, and then He, he calls for us to have the right motivations. Here's the one on giving, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Jesus preaching, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And here it comes, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 